One of the biggest barriers is helping people understand what they are doing is caregiving and that it is okay to ask for help. You know, many people feel that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing out of a sense of love and compassion and sometimes responsibility. And they don't know or don't recognize that it's okay to ask for help, that it is an important job, that it's a hard job and that we're all interdependent on one another, right? <laughs> None of us is solely responsible for another person's care. Welcome to another episode of Advocates in Action, a podcast created by the National Patient Advocate Foundation, a nonprofit that develops initiatives promoting equitable access to affordable quality healthcare through policy action and partnerships. I'm your host, Ashley Freeman. Today, I'm honored to speak with B. Rector, who is the Director for the Home and Community Services Division for Washington State Department of Social and Health Services. She enjoys traveling to new places, taking walks in nature, and spending time with family. Thank you so much for joining me today, B, to discuss the amazing work your team is doing. What are some resources that you all provide when it comes to assistance for caregivers? We provide really a broad range of services to address the needs of caregivers. Through our paid Medicaid programs, if somebody needs to be paid and wants to hire a family or friend to be their paid caregiver, that's an option for them. Outside of Medicaid, we provide a lot of supports to unpaid family caregivers. Things like information and assistance is available through telephone calls or in-person visits. We do screening and assessments of caregivers to get a better understanding of where they are on their caregiving journey and to tailor services and supports to their specific, unique stress and burdens. But in terms of like concrete services, things like respite, help with housework and errands, uh, we purchase specialized medical equipment and supplies. Uh, we do training and education, things like support groups, consultation, fall prevention, and then health maintenance and therapy, things like acupuncture, massage therapy, and evidence-based exercise programs designed for the caregiver. That's a lot of support, especially you piqued my interest when you were mentioning acupuncture and massage therapy, because I feel like that's, that's an area that I would have never thought that a caregiver would need support in. So that's really unique. We know that each caregiver is unique and where they are on their journey and what is causing stress and burden, or even what is creating uplifts, good feelings about their role as a caregiver is, is again, unique to the individual. So being able to provide a broad range of services to address those needs is something that our legislature has found of high value. And how did this program get started? You know, what was really behind having the state help people who are in those caregiving roles? So back in 1983, there was a group of community forums that were held throughout the state. And it was really a broad topic of long-term care and what people needed to address long-term care needs. But a theme in those public forums was caregivers 
and caregivers saying, you know, what we're doing is important, what we're doing is tough, and we really need a break from caregiving. So it's the respite services. Out of those public forums, we had a champion legislator who decided to create a pilot program in 1984, and then uh, it expanded a couple years later to be a statewide program. In 2000, our legislature decided to go above and beyond respite care and start the more broad services that I mentioned earlier and started a state family caregiver program about a year before the national family caregiver program was inserted into the Older Americans Act. Wow. So you all have been (laughs) on this journey before the rest of us caught up. Usually caregivers are left out or left behind in aid programs, you know, not really thought of. So what type of impact does this have and why is it so important to to recognize and address uh, the roles of caregivers in the healthcare system? So caregivers play a critical role in supporting their loved one's health and well-being. They're often the ones that ensure that a doctor's orders or recommendations are implemented, that medications are taken as prescribed. They're often the first to see a change in condition that may necessitate a doctor's visit. Um, They're also often the ones that make sure their loved ones are eating well and that the environment that they're living in is safe. Increasingly, we also know that many caregivers are performing tasks that would otherwise be done by a nurse, you know, things like medication administration, injections, and wound care. So when caregivers are left out, we're missing an opportunity to have them as an integral part of the care team. This can lead to care falling between the cracks when they're not involved and a lack of training in terms of how to perform tasks needed by the person they're caring for adds a lot of stress and burden experienced by the caregiver, um, which if they are addressed can be alleviated. People can feel confident in the work that they're doing for their loved one. And with this work, you know, how do people learn about the programs that you all provide and even access it? Because I remember when I first became a caregiver for my my nana, my grandmother, I didn't even identify as a caregiver in that moment. So I didn't reach out for any resources or any tools. Um, so how do people, you know, really access what you all can provide? You make such an important point because similar to your experience, most caregivers don't identify themselves as such. You know, they're a granddaughter helping grandma, they're a spouse helping their loved one safely rise up out of a chair, you know, which we call transfer assistance, but they certainly don't recognize it that way. So really one of the biggest barriers is helping people understand what they are doing is caregiving and that it is okay to ask for help. You know, many people feel that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing out of a sense of love and compassion and sometimes responsibility. And they don't know or don't recognize that it's okay to ask for help, that it is an important job, that it's a hard job, and that we're all interdependent on one another, right? <laughs> None of us is, is um, solely responsible for another person's care. So for us, we do a lot of outreach. We have kind of a outreach campaign that says, you call it taking mom to the doctor, we call it caregiving. 
Oh, wow. You call it picking up medications. We call it caregiving. Um, and we outreach to doctor's offices, to hospitals, to community groups. We purchase advertisements on buses, um, <laughs> uh, in newspapers, on radio, social media. People access our programs through our statewide network of area agencies on aging. Um, those are entities that are available na- nationwide. And there is a National Family Caregiver Support Program. So no matter where people live in the nation, when I get questions about I don't know where to go to find information, I always uh, suggest that people call their local area agency on aging because they do operate these kinds of programs everywhere in the nation. They may not look exactly like Washington's, but they, they do have services. And they also know what's available locally in order to make those kind of referrals and make sure people get the help they need. Thank you for sharing that resource because that was something I wasn't even aware of. And and with our our listeners tuning in from different states and different locations, that's definitely a helpful resource. And I love that you pointed out about receiving that care at home because I know that was a big thing for my Nana. She was going through early stages of dementia. So she was a little confused at home and she would wake up and come in my room and say, Ashley, you know, why are we at this hotel? It clicked to me one day. I was like, just play along with her. So I was like, yeah, Nana, we're at a hotel. Um, But if you go to sleep in the morning, I'll take you home. And then when she would wake up in the morning, she was fine. Like she knew her surroundings. So it was very interesting. That care at home is critical because her health did decline drastically when she was moved to a nursing home. And and obviously, like you said, there has to be systems in place in order to provide uh, that level of care at home. So for the services that you all provide, do you all support people being able to take care of their loved ones at home? The primary goal of our programs is to help people keep their loved one at home. So the vast majority of services are really wrapped around the the caregiver, but also what we call the care receiver, the person that the caregiver is is serving. And I think you make such an important point in your story about you and your Nana, because um, things like support groups or things like dementia consultation that you could have potentially, you know, reached out to an expert in dementia to hear about, you know, strategies to work with what, what to, how to help Nana when she wakes up in the middle of the night um, and what to expect in the next, you know, month, six months, year, so that you can do some planning as a family around, you know, are there other supports that we can bring into the home um, or do we need to start talking about an out-of-home placement? Um, because there are times where families do a lot to keep someone at home and ultimately, you know, they may need to make very hard decisions about no longer being able to provide the level of support needed and address the person's health and safety, you know, so that I know those are very hard decisions that families make. You're right about it would have been so helpful to know what to expect because things got different to the point where she wasn't talking at all. I was like, man, I wish she was like still waking up asking me if we were at that hotel, you know, like I just I would do anything to hear your voice again. 
Luckily, I have a passion for um, taking photos and, and videos. So I, I documented a lot that level of being able to reach out to someone as a resource and, and understanding what to expect would have definitely been super helpful in that situation. Yeah, and I think what you're describing is so common. You know, I was my mom's caregiver for the last four years of her life. And, you know, when I look back on it now, it's one loss after another, mm-hmm. you know, watching somebody age and lose function and lose abilities, whether that's ability to walk or ability, you know, to, to be cognitively intact, um, you know, the ability to be with their friends and, and do for my mom, it was writing and art, you know, she lost the ability to do that. And, you know, it's so hard to watch somebody you love experience those losses and you experience them as losses too. And, you know, I think it's, it's very insightful of you to have thought about doing, you know, your videography, um, because I wish I would have done some of that with my mom, you know, because when they're gone, they're gone, you know, (laughs) and, and, um, you know, having stuff to look back on when she had some of the abilities that she later lost would have, you know, other than just in my mind, (laughs) would be really good memories. And I think that's the beauty of support groups and support groups are one of the, you know, most utilized resources for caregivers because you, you are with people who have that lived experience, who can completely relate to what it is that you have gone through or will be going through. And to hear that from people that, you know, like a dementia caregiver support group or a Parkinson's dementia support group, um, you know, those folks really know what you're going through. And they also often are really good at giving you a heads up about what's coming and what worked for them and what didn't work for them. So I think that peer-to-peer support Mm -hmm. is, you know, one of those things that you just can't replicate through any other service other than people who have lived it. Yeah, most definitely. And with your support groups and all the other resources that you all provide, how do you measure the impact and effectiveness of your caregiving programs? And and why is measuring that so important? That's a great question, Ashley. You know, our legislature required the adoption of an evidence-based caregiver assessment tool within our family caregiver support program because they really wanted to better understand the impact of their investments on the people that we serve, and we were asking them to increase those investments. What we learned is that caregivers experience a lot of -of out-of-pocket expenses associated with their caregiving. They also experience positive uplifts as well as stress and burden. It's not uncommon for caregivers to have depression or to have their own underlying chronic conditions that they're dealing with while they're caregiving. So we evaluate our programs by looking at the data in that evidence-based assessment, which is able to compare indicators like stress and burden and depression, caregivers' comfort with their own caregiving role and their intent to place out of home their loved one. When a caregiver first enters the program and then we measure it again at six months and again at a year if they remain in our services that long. And we've also participated in research studies to better understand the impacts of our programs. 
So what we've really learned over time is that the assessment and services provided through this program make a true difference to caregivers. 84% of caregivers served in the program had statistically significant improvements in stress, in depression, in the comfort in their caregiving roles. We also know that the program meets needs for equipment and supplies that otherwise have to be purchased out of pocket. And we also know that supporting caregivers through both assessing them and also providing services result in them being able to continue their caregiving role longer. And it also helps them to make the difficult decisions about when they need to change their role as a caregiver meaning maybe it is time, you know, no longer to keep somebody at home, or maybe you need to bring in additional paid resources to the caregiving situation. So we've got really good data about our programs and the effectiveness of our programs. We also know that supporting caregivers in an unpaid capacity actually delays the spend down that happens for folks where they spend their own resources and then come on to Medicaid. We refer to that as impoverishment, you know, because Medicaid is a program for people in poverty. You know, middle income people spend money out of pocket to get their needs met, and then pretty soon the savings is gone Mm -hmm. and they're coming on to Medicaid in order to access the services that they need, which is great. It's wonderful to have Medicaid there, but if you can prevent that spend down, people are able to maintain more of their income so that they can fix a broken water heater when it breaks or fix a roof when it (laughs) leaks. Mm -hmm. Um, And once you spend down to impoverishment, it's really hard to maintain your home because you don't have the money to do it. So it seems like from your data and the measurements that you all are keeping, you've been able to learn a lot. Yeah, we have been able to do that. And in fact, we've used that data to prove that the investments made by our legislature pay for themselves. You know, if you make good targeted investments, you actually can have the program pay for itself because it does delay that increase of caseload on the Medicaid side, Mm -hmm. which states make an investment in. So you can invest this way or you can invest that way, but you, you know, states are going to make an investment one way or another. And do you know any other states that have a robust program similar to Washington or, you know, that have similar results? You know, I do know that every state has the National Family Caregiver Program, and the National Family Caregiver Program does have a variety of services, including respite, including information and assistance for caregivers, as well as some other kinds of services like equipment and supplies. So that's really something available nationwide. And there are a number of states that have really invested in family caregiver programs. You know, we may look at it a little bit differently how we do it. But, you know, I think most states recognize the value of family caregivers and the important role that those family caregivers have. And they're trying to do supports. Everybody's financial situation looks a little bit differently state to state in terms of what they might have to invest and the priorities that their legislature makes. We're, we're super fortunate in Washington that our legislature for many decades have understood the importance mm-hmm. of family caregiving and have been willing to invest in services to support them. And that's crucial, you know, because you can have 
the numbers, you can have the information that says this is important. And if people don't listen to you and then provide that financial backing to actually implement the resources and tools that people need, then, you know, it, it's it kind of goes to waste, you know, all of the the knowledge that you have if there is no money to provide those resources and get them to people. So the fact that you all have been able to do both, both providing these services and also providing the access to them, I think that's really a huge victory for you all. Yeah, I would agree with that. It, it is a huge victory for us. And I, I have a lot of conversations with states about where to start. And, you know, we started with a pilot. You know, we started in a pilot in four areas of the state and we studied it. And we showed the efficacy of the program and then the legislature expanded it to statewide. And so we take these evolutionary steps and we've been at it a long time and now we have this robust program. But it's interesting to note that in Washington, we have almost 850,000 unpaid family caregivers in our state. And we do have these robust services, but we are only serving one to two percent of those unpaid family caregivers. So there's still a huge need out there that is untapped, whether that's because, again, they're caregivers that don't recognize themselves as caregivers or, you know, don't know or feel like they need to ask for help. You know, if every unpaid family caregiver contacted us, we would also be in a waitlist situation because <laughs> um, the resources are not limitless, unfortunately. That ties in perfectly with my next question, which is what are the biggest gaps right now that you see? So our biggest gaps are in that fact that we know that we're only serving a very small proportion of unpaid family caregivers. And so it's trying to understand why that is, making sure that the services are on target for the needs of those individuals, making sure people know that those services are available, and continuing to expand the resource. So, you know, we started this program on 100% general fund state dollars, and then the Older Americans Act created a title, so we were able to bring in federal dollars. Most recently, in 2017, we were able to work with the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid and get a demonstration waiver to bring in Medicaid dollars to support unpaid family caregivers. So we'll continue to try to be innovative and creative and how do we expand the money available so that we can reach more of those caregivers. The pandemic has really impacted caregivers. You know, the population that's most vulnerable to severe impacts of COVID, including, you know, dying from COVID is people who are old. And so there's this fear among people who are older and their caregivers about accepting any services into their home because they don't want to inadvertently bring COVID into the home. So we've got caregivers who typically are isolated and now they're significantly isolated, right? I mean, they used to have respite maybe coming into the home or maybe they brought their loved one to adult day services. Adult day services have closed all over the nation, including here in Washington. So resources that people relied on have disappeared almost overnight Even support groups, it took a while for those support groups that were always in person 
to actually move to a virtual platform. And not everybody has broadband access or internet access or the technology to really use virtual support groups. So I think that has created a huge gap for people. And then we also have caregivers, and this might might have been similar to your situation, given that you're you were a young caregiver, you know, who's trying to balance both caregiving with work life mm-hmm. and careers. And many caregivers are forced to really give up hours at their jobs or they lose their income or opportunities for advancement. And when caregiving spans many years, you know, it really impacts the caregiver's future economic security. So we're real advocates of federal policy, state policy um, that's necessary to shore up, you know, employment rights for people to provide tax relief to caregivers, social security credits, as well as paid family medical leave um, for caregivers so that they can take time away from their work and not lose their job in order to do, you know, short-term caregiving. During this time, have there been any pivot or changes or technology integrations that you all have used with your programs to make it more accessible during this time? First of all, we let folks know that services that were typically delivered face-to-face could be delivered remotely. So for instance, things like medication reminders that may have been done in person, we could do via a telephone call or a video chat. Um, You know, grocery delivery and prescription pickup, you know, we did that without it contactless, kind of like Uber, right? (laughs) Where we'd pick up groceries and leave it on someone's porch and then let them know that it's there. Um, Same with home delivered meals, you know, often done more more contactless than it would have been done prior to the pandemic. Even adult day centers that did close down, they started delivering some services one-on-one instead of in a congregate setting. And one of them is doing a lot virtual. They're doing virtual exercise classes, virtual support groups. They're doing some, even physical therapy uh, remotely via iPads, that, that type of thing. So uh, a lot of our family caregiver support services like support groups have gone mostly fully virtual during the pandemic. Wow, that's amazing. And are there resources um, provided for people who don't have access to iPads or, you know, are those uh, types of tools provided or like, is there their funding for that? We have been able to get some funding to help purchase some technology like iPads, like smartphones. Um, We've had to preload them in some cases with data because people can't afford the monthly internet fees. I think one of the challenges is Medicaid doesn't allow us to use Medicaid for for monthly fees. And that's something that we're advocating for a change in that policy, because if it's not affordable for somebody who's low income, then it's really not accessible, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So there needs to be some changes in federal policy, but we've been lucky in that we have found some fund sources to help people out with getting technology. We do have some gaps in our state in terms of broadband access, though. That's been, you know, some things that have been concentrated on in some of the COVID relief bills that have passed is really we need broadband access in rural areas. We need it throughout 
the nation and throughout our state. And we still have some very big gaps, even in a state like Washington, that has, you know, some technology leaders here local, we still have gaps in our broadband access. Well, that's great that you all have been able to provide that and and fill those gaps for people. Looking towards the future, you know, what do you see as the future for programs for caregivers? And are you optimistic that we will learn how to develop and support caregivers at a higher level? Well, we're experiencing a permanent demographic shift in our country with a growing proportion of the population that's over age 65. There's a high proportion of people who, when you get to be age 70, you're going to need some assistance in your lifetime. And we have a shrinking proportion of the population that's working age. So there's less caregivers than in previous generations. So we have to think creatively about how we're going to care for individuals with disabilities and particularly our growing older adult population. I am optimistic because there's so much more recognition about the importance of caregiving in our nation and in discussions happening at the national level. So you may be aware that the RAISE Family Caregivers Act became law in 2018, and it directs the Secretary of Health and Human Services to develop a national family caregiving strategy. The strategy will identify actions that communities, providers, government, and others are taking and may take to recognize and support family caregivers. There's a panel of experts and strong partnerships across executive branch agencies, all working together with caregivers to draft recommendations, which we should see shortly coming out. There's also many more national organizations talking about the importance of ensuring There is support for caregivers in terms of policies and services and access. So caregiving has been an active conversation in Washington, as as we've talked about for several decades, and will continue to be an area of focus for us because it's a critical component of being able to address the needs of our constituents, which include both caregivers and those who they are caring for. So I'm very hopeful that there'll be an expansion of services, you know, in Washington in the future, but also in the nation. I'm Ashley Freeman, and thanks for listening to this episode of Advocates in Action. If you haven't yet, please subscribe, review, and share this podcast. Your support is greatly appreciated. We enjoy connecting with our listeners, so please visit our website at npaf.org slash podcast for show notes, resources, and ways to engage with us on social media. Thanks for listening.